So we have spent much time over the last week or so recounting the Advent story, the incarnation of Christ, what it means for God to become flesh. And within that context, there were two specific stories that we, that we really zeroed in on. On, New Year, on excuse me, Christmas Eve, we gathered here and we learned about the Magi, those wise men from the East. And we discovered, as we spent some time there in God's Word and looking through what historians have to tell us, that these were not just three really smart guys that happened to know a lot about astronomy. In fact, that these were powerful men from the East, both in the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires, that, uh, that Magi, much, much like Levites in Israel, that they were born into this role. But then once there, they carried a great deal of power. They had the ability to write laws. They had the ability to appoint judges. They had the ability to crown kings. In fact, there was no king crowned in the East apart from the blessing of the Magi. And so it, it should have been no surprise to us that an evil king like Herod, a jealous king like Herod, would have been left quaking in his boots as this, just this fantastic parade, these magi from the east, these kingmakers from the east, as they rode into town looking for the king of the Jews, acknowledging that they were there and that they were prepared to worship. Now, that, there would have been no reason, as smart as these men were and as as much wisdom as they may have had, there would have been no reason for them to know anything about a promised king of the Jews or anything about a star that would precede his birth. But God, in his sovereignty, according to his hand, he saw fit some 600 years earlier to take a man named Daniel, along with many Israelites, and, and lead them off into captivity, into exile there in Babylon. And this man named Daniel, he, he remained faithful to God committing to follow after God's law three times a, a day, coming before the Lord in prayer. And it was because of this faithfulness to God that, that God used him to interpret dreams for a number of kings while they're in exile. So much so that eventually we read in Daniel 5.11 that King Nebuchadnezzar had placed him as chief over all these magi. And so surely as a, as a faithful follower of God, he would have taught these men that were entrusted to him about God and about God's promises and about the promised king that would come and make all things right. So that some six centuries later, when these magi themselves, descendants of those magi, when they looked into the sky and they saw this star, they would have known about the promises of God, about the virgin birth, about the promised Messiah. And they would have known above all that this was a king that was to be worshipped. You see, that's what happens when God's power by his spirit and by his word, when it intersects with people, even pagan people. They recognize things that the rest, of the rest of the world just looks upon and turns a shoulder. Similarly, on uh, last Sunday morning, we talked about the shepherds. These unworthy, uneducated, unclean, irreligious boys out there minding their own business, tending their flock by night. But God saw fit to send a message through an angel to be magnified by the heavenly hosts to announce to them that the Christ was born. That today, that day, an actual day in an actual place, God had come. And so in response to that, just like the Magi, they, they run to the scene, they fall down, and they worship God. God's word combined with God's spirit intersecting man, 
going about their own business, and yet when that happens, something magnificent comes to pass that man understands true worship. That an ordinary star, an ordinary child, a lowly couple, a man that would grow to be, to humanize, an ordinary carpenter, that when we come into contact with God's spirit and God's word and the power that is contained therein, that we can rightly understand who God is, what he's doing, and be driven to right worship. And then apart from those things, we will totally miss what it is that he's doing. We are completely dependent upon God's grace and activities exactly such as this. So it's with that in mind that we begin our study of the next book of the Bible that, that I believe God's led us to, and that's the Gospel of Mark, the second gospel in your New Testament. And now for many of you, the, the Gospel of Mark is one that you have referred to the least often, I would bet. And perhaps you've spent the least amount of time of all the Gospels studying the gospel, of, the gospel of Mark. This is in part because it's the shortest of the Gospels, in part because so much of what's found there in the Gospel of Mark, more than 95% of what you find in Mark, you will also find in Luke and in Matthew. You'll find no birth story there in Mark. If, in fact, Mark ends where I believe that it ends, in the 8th verse of the 16th chapter, then there is no tales of the resurrected Jesus encountering his people. And so for, for a number of centuries, there were people that viewed Mark as just a poor man's Matthew is a cliff note to something that was greater. They thought that it was the third, perhaps the last of the Gospels written, and therefore it didn't, didn't hold as high a place as this other Gospels might have. And then, late in the 19th century, some, some, some smart guys decided, you know what, let's revisit this. Let's revisit this and let's ask some questions. Number one, would it make sense for this man named Mark to come along after Luke and Matthew, having well-established gospels would it make sense for this man to then come pare down their information give us a lesser version in more common greek just a summation of what these men had gone before them and written or perhaps does it make more sense that mark was the first that god had seen fit to call this ordinary ordinary man named mark to recount the tales of what it was that jesus had done and that matthew and luke were in fact well acquainted with the work of mark and and used much of what they found there in the writing of their own gospel doesn't it make sense then that the shorter gospel would have come first and that God would have then used Matthew and Luke to expound on that, to offer us a little bit more detail that wasn't found in there? And since that time, it's been pretty much widely accepted that Mark was in fact the first gospel that was written. In fact, we think that it was written sometime around the year 63 AD. That would have been before, uh, before the apostle Peter, right around the time that the apostle Peter was, was killed there in Rome, but sometime before the great fire of, of of 64 AD. It would have been at that time that there were still a number of eyewitnesses alive. You see, if, if in fact Mark wrote his gospel in the year 64, 63, that means that a number of the epistles had been written before this, before the very first gospel. You see, what, what certainly would have happened was they would have looked out and they would have seen this church that was, that was just in its infancy, this church that was attempting to grow, this church that was attempting to figure out what life under the headship of Christ was supposed to look like, this church that had no shortage of enemies, both from within and without. And so there would have been a great urgency for the apostles to write instruction to them, to write encouragement to them, to exhort them, to tell them what life within the church was meant to look like, while the eyewitnesses to the work of Christ would have been all around and people would have continued to by, by word of mouth to tell people what it was that Jesus had done and how that was intended to be applied to their life. But then as time went on, and as these eyewitnesses got older, and as the church got more established, and in fact even grew some, it would have been natural then that people would have urged men such as Mark 
to write a tale of what it was that Jesus had done because these men wouldn't be around forever. So it became incumbent upon them to put down into writing the things that had happened. But because there were so many eyewitnesses around at that time, we can have great confidence in the words of men such as Mark. You see, Mark couldn't have claimed that Jesus fed 5,000, that he walked on water, that he raised the dead, that he healed the sick. He couldn't have claimed any of that while these people were still living if it were not so. All it would have taken was a, Rome or a Roman man or a Jewish man to stand up and go, no, 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 I was there and it didn't happen that way. And so that's part of how we find so much confidence in the words that we find in Mark and the other Gospels, because these men would have still been, would have still been living. And so Mark would have had to take great care to make sure that he, he only spoke the truth, that he only wrote down those things which actually happened as they were imparted to him by the Apostle Peter. And yet at the same time, this work is not just a history. It's not just a biography. It's not a personal correspondence or a letter. It was something new. It was something different. It was a gospel, a euangelion. It was, something, it was something new, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was a theological work, a Christological work. His intention there was not just to tell us the things that Jesus did, but to tell us who he was. And I can see you stirring. Don't worry, guys. We're setting the stage here, okay? This is not full lecture, but it's so critical that you understand the book that we're about to look at. I don't know, at the pace I go, we may spend five years in the book of Mark. And so it's important that we launch from a safe place, from a solid place, understanding how is it that we have any hope of understanding or trusting or believing the words of this guy named Mark. So hang with me. The, the work that we do this morning is sure to pay dividends in the months, years, even, even decades to come. And so Mark, just like the rest of the gospel writers, he was no literary giant. He was no incredible genius. He was no, in fact, they, those that understand the Greek so much better than I do, they, they, they tell us that Mark spoke in a very common man in uh, Greek. This was not high literature. This was not, this was not highfalutin talk. He talked at a level that the common man could understand. And, and if, in fact, he wrote it in the year 63, 64, sometime around there, he would have been in Rome at that time. And if you look at the book of Mark, you, what you'll come to realize is that it seems extremely likely that he was writing this book to Gentiles rather than Jews. Because he spends a great deal of time explaining Jewish Hebrew customs to people. It wouldn't have been necessary had he been writing primarily to Jews to explain much of what he explained. In addition to that, he doesn't include any kind of genealogy because Gentiles didn't care a whole lot about Jewish genealogies. In addition to that, what you will find is that he refers to the Old Testament. Although he does refer to the Old Testament right there in the very first chapter, he refers to the Old Testament less so than some of the other guys. In addition to that, Mark's gospel is ex extremely fast-paced. More than 40 times you'll hear him use the word immediately. I mean, he's just jumping from place to place to place to place. You're forced to put yourself into the story in order to have any hope of understanding what it is that's happening. Very rarely does he camp out on any one story for an extended period of time. If you're to understand the teachings of Christ, you're forced to put yourself right there in that place at that time. What you'll find as well is that the gospel of Mark, it's, it's, it's building towards a crescendo right there in the middle. Right there in, in Mark 8, 26, you'll find this, this confession by Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Leading up to that, what you'll find is great confusion. I want you to note as we walk through this gospel, Mark, I want you to note the way that, that, that we have so much more information than the people inside the story. The people just remain confused about who this Jesus is and what he's doing. You'll notice that within this gospel, what Mark does is he shows us how those that are within the inner circle of Christ, those that are closest to him, seem to have the least idea of who he is. And while these outsiders, these people that, that you would have no hope would ever recognize him, seem to understand his deity, seem to understand that he is the son of God. 
But then at that point, this crescendo builds up to that point at which Peter confesses him at the Christ, confesses him as the Christ, and then from that point, the confusion becomes hatred and aggression, all hinging on that one confession, you are the Christ. He goes from just some teacher, perhaps some miracle man, to the Christ, and all of a sudden the aggression comes, and we see this, this steady march towards the steady march towards the cross. So we do, we do well to ask ourselves, who is Mark and why on earth should we listen to him? And because gospel writers don't sign their letters, don't sign their works the way a number of the epistles are signed, we're forced to, we're forced to take some of our understanding from early church writers, from church fathers. There's one guy by the name of Clement of Alexandria. He was a theologian in the second century, and he says this, when Peter had publicly preached the word in Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, those present, who were many, exhorted Mark as one who had followed Peter for a long time and remembered what had been spoken to make a record of what he had said. He did this and distributed the gospel among those that asked him. And so we find from this guy that, that Mark was one that had accompanied Peter. He had been with Peter. He had heard him preaching there in Rome. And he had been faithful then to record that. In addition to that, we see Papias. He was a bishop in Asia Minor around that same time. He says this, that Mark left, left out nothing of what he had heard from Peter and made no false statements in them. So we find that he's a man that had walked with Peter, and then he had been faithful to record everything that he had said there. And so it's from that time forward that we begin to find some manuscripts that have the word euangelion of Marcos, of Mark. That Mark was, in fact, accepted as the one that wrote this letter. In fact, it was a man named John Mark, and John Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. He was not one that had been in that inner circle. He is not one that had walked with Jesus. He was not one that had seen him after the resurrection necessarily. In fact, the first time we see a named encounter with this man named Mark, it's in Acts 12. Herod Agrippa, the grandson of King Herod, Herod the Great, he had snatched up, he had snatched up James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, and he had killed him. And when he found that the Jews took great joy in seeing these Christians killed, he thought, I'm going to do that again. So he snatched up Peter. And it was intention that after the Passover came, that he was going to also murder Peter. And yet on the night before that murder was to take place, an angel comes, pokes Peter in the side, wakes him up, and frees him. It takes a while for Peter to come to. He, he, he kind of shakes the cobwebs out, and then he realizes, I can't just stay in the street. And I know that my brothers are worried about me because I know tomorrow I'm intended to die. And so he goes to this house. We read it like this, Acts 12, 12. When he realized this, realized what had happened, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So realizing it wasn't safe, he goes to this house, apparently a well-known house of a woman named Mary and her son, John Mark. Apparently this was a place where the people had gathered often because he knew this was where they would be, where they had gathered together to pray. They had prayed for the safety and the release of their friend named Peter. They had prayed for God to protect them. They had prayed for God to continue to expand his gospel. They had gathered there. Tradition tells us that this is the same house where the believers were gathered together at the time of Pentecost. This may well have been the house at which those tongues of fire came and rested upon the apostles there, the believers there, the faithful there. The start of the church could have happened right here in this very house. But without a doubt, what we know is that John Mark grew up in a house where God was loved. Where the stories of Christ were told, where he would have been taught to pray. He would have had a front row seat to the formation of the church. Around this same time, Mark's cousin, a man named Barnabas, had come down from the church in Antioch along with a man named Paul. You've probably heard of him. They had come down with, from Antioch and they, they brought with them a gift they brought with them an offering that they had collected from the churches there for those that were suffering under a famine in Jerusalem. 
And so as they came with this offering, they came to the house. Right here we read in Acts 12, 25. Barnabas and Saul, after they had come and they had offered their, they had offered their gift there for the, for the poor believers, they head back out. Acts 12, 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to Antioch when they had completed their service. That's delivering this gift. Bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. And so they agree, we're going to go back to Antioch and we're going to take this John Mark with us. Acts 13, 2 through 5. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, that's John Mark, to assist them. And so this first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas, they determined they were going to take this John Mark with them. Not because he was a great speaker, not because he was some great Bible scholar, not because he had proven himself in some mighty way, but because he was a helper. Because he was an assistant. Can you do that? Can you just be a helper? Can you be somebody that those that are out doing the work of Christ finds helpful? It was based on that that they chose to take John Mark with them. They lead him out, understanding that these are the men that God uses. The lowly that he may shame the high. The simple that he may shame the wise. But the trip wasn't going to be easy. We read there that as they're going about their work, they encounter a, a magi, a magician named Elimus, and that, that this man would oppose their work, that they had an appointment to go and see the, the, the governor in that town, and yet he had opposed them, and he, he, he tried to oppress them and keep them from going to him. And so Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he strikes this magician blind. And as a result of this, the governor does come to faith in Jesus Christ. But despite seeing this, despite seeing God's favor and God's power in the face of opposition, John Mark is apparently discouraged, or he's afraid, or he's homesick, or he's something, and so he abandons him. He deserts him. He tucks tails and he, tail and he heads back home. But God was not through with Mark yet. What we read then is that as Paul and Barnabas, they come back to Antioch and, and they determine for themselves, hey, let's go back. Let's go back to the places we've gone. I'll read from Acts 15, 36 through 40. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. That's his cousin. But Paul thought best not to take him since he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. That's the Bible way for saying a fight. There arose between them a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Paul hadn't forgotten Mark's failure. And it's interesting here that we don't read necessarily that Paul was right or that Barnabas was right or that either one of them was wrong. We just see here that Paul had determined that it was not right that he would take this man that had failed them, that had deserted them back on this second trip. This was not, however, by the grace of God, the last time that we would hear about the relationship between Paul and John Mark. You see, when Paul was in, when Paul was in prison, this, there in Rome in 62, 63 AD, sometime around then, he was writing a number of letters, and one of those was to a man named Philemon, and at the conclusion of that letter, Paul says this, this is Philemon 23 to 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So he, he lumps Mark in with his fellow workers, along with a man like Luke. And then a letter on that same time to the Colossians, he writes this, Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greet you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
They'll seem like throwaway, inconsequential lines. This shows you how important every portion of Scripture is. These seemingly throwaway lines just at the end of a letter. Oh, by the way, Mark's here too. Oh, by the way, if Mark comes to you, greet him too. And what it shows is this transformation. That these men have now been brought back together. So much so that Paul not only views him as a co-laborer, as a helper, as an assistant, but one that's to be greeted in the Lord. That one's to be, to be trusted. And then even beyond that, in the year 67, as Paul is there in Rome for his final imprisonment, before he is killed by, killed by Nero, he writes this in his second letter to Timothy, 4, 9 through 11. Do your best to come to me for Demas. Remember he was talking earlier about how Demas was there, being faithful. Not anymore. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Talk about, you talk about redemption. This beautiful story of these, these men coming back together. All because of the work of God in his life. And, and again, I, I told you earlier that he was friends with, with Peter. Peter pledged his love for, for John Mark as well in one of his letters. 1 Peter 5, 12 through 13. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regarded him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting you, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. So that in a time when he knew that the church would be discouraged and distraught, he's encouraging them. And he knows it would be an encouragement to them to hear from Mark. To hear from Mark, his son. So you see this man, number one, how is that for a couple of references on your resume? Who, me? I don't know, call Paul, maybe Peter, either one, doesn't really matter. That this, this man that had been a deserter, this man that had, had walked away from the work of the Lord at one time, that now God saw fit to bring him into contact to hear the preaching of men like Paul. The great fathers of the early church, the one that was out there that was spreading the good news that was being beaten that was suffering so much of our new testament came from his pen that this man would view him as a co-worker as a laborer despite his earlier failures and that then cephas that peter one of the one of the closest companions of the lord and savior jesus christ during his earthly ministry that he too would refer to him as a son a spiritual son and can you even imagine the conversations that they must have had i can just imagine peter and and John Mark together during their time there in Rome is there, he's listening to Peter going out and, 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 and preach the gospel and then they're sitting around dinner one night. And I can just see the, the tears in Mark's eyes and he shakes his head and says, I, I can't believe I was so weak. I can't, I can't believe I deserted them. And I, and I can't believe that I'm here now. I can't believe that God would see fit to use me in spite of that. And as Peter tells him, Son, do you, do you not remember the stories I've been telling you? Do you not remember how I, I told you I was with the Lord? I heard his voice. I, I kissed his face. We, we slept under the stars and, and ate the same food. And then, despite his warnings, on that night when he went into the garden to pray, he had warned me. And I couldn't even pray for one hour. I was so weak. And then as they came to arrest him and to carry him away, I was ready to fight because that's all I knew, but he told me I had to put my sword up. Well, I didn't trust in that. I didn't trust in him. And so I ran and I denied. But, but Mark, you, you were there at Pentecost. You saw what happened. You saw the way I was transformed when the one that he had promised, when the Holy Spirit that he had promised, the helper that he had promised, when he came upon me, you saw how I've been transformed. You see the way I'm now used, and you too, when you came to faith, when that same spirit came upon you, 
how you're now being used. You're not the same. Mark, don't you understand? It isn't that you've gotten better. It isn't that you've fixed your problems. Mark, you understand that you've been transformed now. Dear church, I need you to hear this. It's not in, God, it's not in Mark's gospel. He didn't talk about himself. He maybe references himself, I don't, I don't know, once. Not even by name within his gospel. And yet, church, you, you've got to understand that the work that God can do in transforming a man named Mark, I understand that there's, on a, on a morning like this, there's sure to be some of you in this room and you just think there's no way God can use you. If you only knew the things that I did, if you only knew the words that I spoke, if you only knew the thoughts that I had, there's no way that God could possibly use me. And I get it. I get it. I don't like much of what I see in myself. The sins that I see in myself. Look, I don't even leave, I don't even leave room for the enemy to tempt me and lead me away. I'm just lured away by my own desires. My own selfish desires like a pig returning to slop. A dog back to his vomit over and over and over again. Professing the love of Christ and then abandoning him when things get tough. When the world gets heavy, I understand exactly what that is. I understand what it's like to look to the Lord and go, God, how could you possibly use me, a wretch? What use could I be in your kingdom? How can you let me live, much less use me for anything in your kingdom other than an object of eternal wrath? But don't you see that's the good news? That's the gospel. That's the entirety of Mark's work summed up. That God doesn't look at a man like Mark, a coward. He doesn't look at me, a prideful, gluttonous, lazy, selfish, unforgiving, hate-filled. Did I say lazy? He doesn't look at me and say, okay, well, here comes what you deserve. I'm going to pour out my wrath upon you. And at the same time, though, he doesn't look at me and go, what's all I got to work with, so I guess I'm going to do my best. No, what he does is he makes something new. Behold, I make all things new. No longer conform to the pattern of this world. Crucified, buried, risen to walk in a new life. That's the promise of the gospel. That's what he did for Mark. We don't know exactly what happened in the 10 years between when he abandoned and when we hear from him again. And yet we know that there was transformation. We know that God had done a miraculous work and he had made this guy into something that he was going to use in his kingdom. He isn't limited to use just the good parts of you because without him there are no good parts. He said it. <laughs> but dear friends, don't you see what confidence this should give you? Don't you see the confidence that this should give you, that you're worth in the kingdom, that you're positioned before the king? It is not incumbent upon you. It's not incumbent upon your actions or your activities or your own worth found within yourself. We live in this society that's so stupid. You see these people just constantly, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. You ain't enough. Unless you're in him. And then your usefulness and your position, it's in his hands. That we don't need to worry about our failures. That even our sin, as depraved as they are, even our sin is tools in the hand of God. That he could be glorified. That he could use that for our good. I think that's in part what he was doing with Mark. He was allowing Mark to come to the end of himself. He put him in positions where he couldn't possibly succeed in his own power. And he didn't. He quit and he went home. So that Mark would come to the end of himself, recognize, I must die. I must become something new. So that then he was ready to receive the gospel. Then he was ready to finally be used in the kingdom. Dear friends, we're going to find so much to praise God for in this book of Mark. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm excited. 
Probably not as excited as you are to be getting to the New Testament, but I am excited to see what God has for us because we were going to find on every single page, we're going to find an opportunity to praise God. We're going to have opportunity to see him as he is. We're going to have opportunity to see exactly what he was doing and sending his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. We're going to find out that we didn't have a clue. That that God that we think we've got figured out, that that Jesus Christ that we think we've got in a box that we've not even yet dipped our little toe in the depths of the ocean of who he is. So stand to your feet, please, as we read together from Mark's gospel. We're going to read the first eight verses, and, and we will return. We will return to these very same verses. Don't worry, I'm not going to pull a Nehemiah. We'll only do, be in these verses two weeks. But we are, going to, we are going to read these verses two weeks in a row. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I see my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel hair. And wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, and the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All God's people said? Amen. And then you may be seated. Father God, who are we? Who are we that you would love us? Who are we that you would choose us? Who are we that you would call us? Who are we that you would transform us? Father, who are we that you would carry us from one degree of glory to another? Father, may we never fall for the lies of the enemy that apart from you we are enough. But at the same time, Father God, may we not fall for the flip side of that lie that in you we are found lacking. Father, as we come to your precious word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through it. Father, I pray by your spirit it would make sense to us, Father, that we would, while we stand and, and just stare off into great mysteries, Father, that, that you would show us yourself, that you would show us ourself, that you would show us our Savior. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So this book begins in the beginning, borrowing the words from the very beginning of the Bible, from the book of Genesis, the same, same words that, that John used in his gospel. In the beginning, in the beginning, the beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel is what he says here. Every bit as foundational as the beginning of the world. Every bit as foundational as that moment in which God decided that he would create time and space and matter, that he would breathe stars, that he would create the earth, that he would form everything that is. Just as, just as fundamental as that is the beginning of this. This was the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, not the end. That this, that this moment of his birth, the moment of his baptism, even the moment of his death and resurrection was not the end, it was the beginning. So that as we read through this book, we are constantly driven to look forward to something greater, to his return. He's saying it's not over yet. That this is the beginning of the last days, but not the last days of the last days. That when the last days of the last days come, he will return and he will make all things right. 
that that is what this is the beginning of. And yet at the same time, it is the beginning, the ushering in of the kingdom of God, the long-awaited kingdom of God. These people had waited for so long, generation after generation, for this thing to begin. They had tried to bring it in on their own terms, through military might, through religious reforms, and every time they were found lacking, every time they were left looking forward again to something else. And yet, finally, at this moment, both Mark and John, they're telling us this is the beginning. The beginning of something new, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And this Jesus is the Christ. It may have taken Peter years to recognize this. At least it took him eight chapters within Mark's book in order for Peter to come to this recognition that Jesus is the Christ. He wouldn't allow us to wait that long. It was too fundamental. You can almost see Mark busting at the seams. He comes in, he says, okay, I'm going to tell you a long story. No, 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 I can't. He's the Christ. This is what you need to know more than anything else. He's the Christ, okay? Okay? Just keep that in the back of your mind. He's the Christ. The one we've been waiting for. This is the beginning and he's here. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And as we talked about, not just anointed for a season, not just anointed for a time. He wasn't an earthly king, an earthly priest, an earthly prophet. He was the greatest of all. Chosen, set apart, called, sent, here. No longer was the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, a title. It was affixed as a proper name for him. Jesus Christ. No longer do we look forward to another one. He's the one. He's here. He's the one you need to look to. He's the one you need to trust. He's the one you need to worship. And he is the son of God. That's where we're going to end today. He is the son of God. Dear Christian, I implore you not to just look past those words. All throughout scripture we find references to Jesus as the son of God. So much so that I'm afraid it's lost some of its meaning for many of us. I can promise you that it has for me. I spent, I can't even tell you how many hours I spent this week wrestling with what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God. And it's not as easy as you might think. To grapple with the depths of what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God. The ultimate confession that Jesus is the Son of God. The reason for his, the reason for his crucifixion, the reason why all of his disciples would be bartered, would be killed, because of this confession, Jesus is the Son of God. The beginning words, the very beginning words of the Apostle Cre- Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So fundamental. We can't, we can't overstate the depths, the, 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 the weight that these words, these words carry. Is the confession that Peter made after, and the other apostles after watching Jesus walk on water, the confession of Thomas, the, the, the confession of, of demons himself. The confession from the church, the, the, the very foundation of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That whosoever shall believe in him shall have everlasting life. We, we can't overestimate the weight of this. And yet at the same time, as men have tried to grapple with this truth, what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? They fall into just incredible heresy. Because it's so very, so very difficult to grasp. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? Because throughout scripture, we see a number of people referred to as sons of God. We see angels. We see Adam. We see Israel. We see the church. So to say that Jesus is the Son of God, is that the same thing as to say that Adam or you or I are sons of God? Does that mean that Jesus was created just like you and I? Does that mean he's different and separate from God, and yet God has chosen to love him in some, some different way? Surely not. The Heidelberg Catechism, it asks this question in, in question number 33. Why is he, that's Jesus, called God's only begotten Son when we also were God's children? The answer, because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God. So that he is something different, eternally the Son of God. 
In his very nature, the son of God, whereas for us, that's something that is attained. He didn't attain the sonhood. We see this throughout Scripture where he says, I will send my son. He doesn't say, I will send the second member of the Godhead, and he will become my son. He says, he is my son, and I will send him. Eternally the son of God. Whereas we become that through adoption, through joining together with our brother, Jesus Christ, we become through adoption so that he is very different from us in that way. And while we don't have time to fully unpack all that it means, let us simply start with this. There is only one God. That God is three persons, and all of those three persons are fully God. Make sense? Don't you say yes. How can, how can Jesus, and he says, I and the Father am one. If you've seen, the fa- you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, when he acknowledges his position as the Son of God, that the people are outraged, that they must kill him because this man puts himself as an equal with God. So clearly to say that he's the Son of God is to say that he's God, but how can a son be God? How can he be the same? The fancy word for that is the Trinity. You've heard that, and yet it's not found in Scripture. You see evidence of the, of the, you see it right there at creation. God the Father, through his words, through his Son, is creating as the Spirit is hovering along the earth. You see it at his baptism. As Jesus is baptized, and immediately as he comes up out of the water, you're the Father, acknowledging him as Son, as the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him like a dove. You see it in the Great Commission, where he tells us that we're to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It would not be right to baptize in the name of something that's not God. And so we're familiar with the idea of the Trinity, and yet there's nothing within all creation that can ever properly point us towards it. You see, all analogies fall, fall so short. He's not water and ice and mist. He doesn't just change form. He's not the governor, the judge, and the policeman. He doesn't just put on a new hat. He's not a three-leaf clover. It's not just individual pieces of who God is broken off. He is fully God, and yet three persons, that each one of those persons is fully God, that anything you would say about God in his essence, in his nature, in his, in his being, in his substance, it is all there found in each one of these, and yet they're not the same, that they would speak to each other with phrases like you and I, making clear that this isn't just God changing form. He isn't just putting on a new hat. This isn't an elephant where you feel the ear and I feel the tusk and God just whatever it is that you experience him to be. No, no, no. He is literally three in one. So, so, because of this, when we, when, we, when we hear him saying, I am the Father and one, when you see him crucified for saying that I am the Son of God, no one's crucified us for this. No one's found us blasphemous when we say we are sons of God because it's something different, that he is the one begotten, sent. And as the second member of the Godhead, it is right that he's referred to as Son, eternally Son. You never see the Son sending the Father. You see the Father sending the Son. Just as you see Father and Son sending out the Spirit. The Spirit proceeding from Father and Son. Why then does he call himself Son if he is God? And I'll simply say this this morning. This is, this is, the, this is as close as I could get this morning. And, and we will talk about this in much greater detail as God continues to walk us through this gospel. But as best I can tell, perhaps what God is doing in this is because we, we, we can't grasp this idea of sonhood because we always run it through the filter of what we know as sons to fathers or fathers to son. And so what we do is we look to this Jesus Christ as the son of God and we try to interpret him in according to our own filters and our own experiences. And instead, perhaps what God is doing here is he's showing us the prototype. 
Just as marriage was intended to be Christ and the church, the bride and the groom, groom and the bride, perhaps what he's doing here is he's showing us the, so that when we look to Jesus, we not only see the fullness of God coming to be man, we not only see God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and God's power and God's holiness and all that it is to be God there in that man. At the same time, we see what it means to be son and his submission to the Father and his refusal to grasp that which is his and his laying aside the right to make these decisions for himself and saying, I will only do that which I see my Father do. I will seek the will of my Father. So perhaps what he's doing here is he's painting a picture for us of what Perfect sonhood is intended to look like right there in his son. At the same time, we can look at that same son and see the fullness of what it means to be God. Even with his very glory veiled there in the flesh, only to be revealed in certain spurts. Dear friend, it's an incredible mystery. It's an incredible mystery. And I'm, I, I praise God that he doesn't strike me dead as I, as I border on blasphemy, even trying to put this into human words, even trying to express this to you. We will never put him in a box. We will never fully understand. We will never comprehend. And yet at the end of it all, what I know is that he's to be worshipped. He's to be praised. And God alone is to be worshipped. And God alone is to be praised. And Jesus is God. And therefore worthy of all worship. Worthy of all praise. Worthy of all glory. Worthy of all honor. And that's what we come in this place to do. To worship. To praise the God that is three. The God that is one. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that salvation is found in his name. We thank you that Jesus came. We thank you that he is the Christ. We thank you that he is your son. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we too may be called sons and daughters because of his work. He, an eternal son by nature, we sons and daughters by adoption. We thank you for that glorious picture. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and sing praises to his name. And Father, we, we know that our words will never do. We know that we will always fall short. We know that we will never. And Father, we praise you that they fall short. We praise you that we can't figure him out. We praise you. We don't want a God that we can figure out. What good is that? So We praise you that you are above, that you are beyond, that you are greater, that you are mysterious. Father, as we sing these songs of praise to you this morning, Father, I pray that they would be pleasing to your ear. But I pray that we would be changed as we sing these words. We love you and we thank you. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen.